All right, if you have a Bible, open to the book of Jude. This is sort of like a quiz, if you can find it. Jude is the second to last book in the Bible, a very short book. And I'm just going to read the really brief introduction and then let Albert sort of take it from there. So this is the first couple of verses of the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Many of you know I will be going on sabbatical beginning May 2nd. So that's next Monday. And so looking at the books of the Bible that I can finish before then, I selected Jude. But please don't take this the wrong way because there are actually quite a few books in the Bible could be considered given the amount of time that I have left here. And it wasn't by default that it was Jude because I could have done, you know, Obadiah. You know, it's one or two chapters. Second and third John, only one chapter. Haggai, two chapters, you know, like all these books, right? Titus three chapters, Nahum, there's a lot, right? But there was something that was calling me from Jude, and it was just saying like, hey Jude. (laughs) So that's why we went with Jude. Forgive me also, I I haven't been feeling very well, so I missed last week, so what I thought was going to be a three-week series is now a two-week series. And so we're going to actually, I apologize for this, skip quite a bit of it to where I'm probably just going to read it, but not going to be able to expound on it very much. And we'll focus mostly on this first section of Jude. And I think it's a really, really timely book for our day and age. And as just parting words from your pastor in the next three and a half months, I wanted to leave you guys with something to consider. You see, the church, not just our church, but the church, will experience some things that are prophesied in the Bible. And I want to make sure that before I leave, that you are aware of them before I step away just for a little short while. I am very confident in Pastor Steve. I'm very confident in our elders. I'd just like to do my part right now. And I think Jude wrote a very fitting letter to the church. Have you noticed that in the past several weeks, this has been purposeful, that as I do the benediction, I actually have been reading from Jude, that it has been from the latter part of Jude, which is the study that we're going to focus on next week, and that we'll take a closer look on that. And this is partly why, is to set us in this mindset. It's because it shows us that the danger to the church is not really going to come from the outside, but it comes from within. And I really need everyone to hear this. Don't you think the church has actually done quite well, really well, from the assaults outside of the church walls? I mean, we're here 2,000 years later, right? We've done pretty well. Years and years of persecution, persecution that happens now that is trying to stamp it out. We hear of things happening in Africa and Asia And actually, if you look throughout church history, what we found is that the church thrives when it's most heavily persecuted. So who has destroyed the church? Because you look at areas like Western Europe, where the church is weakened severely, that those attacks are actually from within. And so I find it interesting that the world is so busy looking to discredit the church, even in America, to weaken the church, to destroy the church, And here's something that they don't understand, 
is that whenever that happens, that actually makes the church stronger. I'm glad they haven't figured this out yet. Because if you really want to destroy the church, you give it what it wants. You just give us what we want. Now, I just told the entire world, if they were to listen to my sermon, how to get rid of the church. Can you believe I just did that? I just told the world how to get rid of the church. And you look at world history, like Western Europe as an example, and you look at what has happened to the church there. You look at places like Constantinople in Turkey, and it's not Christian anymore. You kind of look at world history, and you see what happens when the church gets what it wants, when the church is in power, when the church is actually so influential within governance that it actually ruins itself. Now, why is this? We are sinful people. We're very sinful, and it's only a matter of time when the church gets comfortable enough to be complacent about its own teachings. And here's a beautiful thing about persecution, that it actually helps to keep the gospel pure. It doesn't allow for that stuff to come in. It keeps the main thing the main thing. Persecution has never destroyed the church in the last 2,000 years. Never. What has? False teachings from within the church. That's destroyed the church. Now, this is not a call for condemnation or accusation on our part. I'm not saying that our church has it all together and that we're going to be out there being false teacher sniffers or anything like that. It's not a call to be argumentative or quarrelsome. Not at all. We're not out here looking for a fight. It's not what we're here for. We desire peace. Do our hearts break when we see that there is a lack of peace between God and people? Do we care that people are separated from God? So this is by no means a call of condemning judgment, but it's with genuine care, that we genuinely care. And this is how Jude approached the church. He wasn't filled with condemnation. There was this genuine care for what was happening in the church. Now, I can see why people think Jude was more combative than probably what I'm going to present, and it's mainly because of verse 3. Because people who like to be combative and quarrelsome, they go straight to verse 3 where it reads this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, and then they focus on that word, contend. I don't know how many of you have heard this. I've grown up with this stuff. But what we really need to focus on is not the word contend there, but who's writing this letter? Who was Jude? Jude, his name's actually Judas. His name's Judas. And just like many of you who have longer names, you have shortened them, kind of like, you know, to Steph from (laughs) Stephen Curry. You know, know, I, I just had to get that name in there somehow. But Jude also has his shortened name, and it's used in most translations from the Bible, and most scholars believe that it's to differentiate between Judas Iscariot and Jude. So here's Jude. Now, who was Jude? Jude is Jesus' half-brother. Right? In Mark chapter 6, Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in that synagogue, and people were astonished at what Jesus said, and this is what Mark records for us in chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? 
women and are not his sisters with us. And they took offense at him. So this was one of Jesus' little brothers who grew up with Jesus. And like all of Jesus' brothers, Jude did not believe in Jesus. John chapter 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not a single brother was a disciple of Jesus. Not until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension did they believe. It's not until Acts chapter 1, verse 14 that we find them believing in Jesus. This is what it reads. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So you look at verse 1, and it gives you an insight as to how humble Jude is. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. See, he doesn't point to Jesus as his brother. He points to his brother James. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So he's not here. I mean, if I was writing this letter, I would totally be like, Albert, brother of Jesus, right? Like, you, you got to listen to me. I'm his brother. I grew up with him. Like, I've known him for 30 some odd years. You got to listen to me. But this is not what Jude does. He doesn't brag about this whatsoever. He first identifies himself as, I'm his servant. He's recognizing Jesus is Lord. He's not just like my brother. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. And then he writes, I am his brother, though, but he's a brother of James. It's kind of like an indirect way of saying, yeah, he's my brother, but I first need to get across to you that I'm his servant. And so, yes, he has this sibling connection, this blood connection, but most importantly, it's a spiritual one, and it's one that is his own salvation, his own relationship with Jesus as his master. That was what was paramount. So Jude presented himself in this really modest way, knowing that he once was this unbeliever in Jesus who was transformed into a follower of Jesus, and he wrote, to those who are called. So this is not a letter to those who don't believe in Jesus. This letter is addressed to those beloved in God the Father. Those of us who belong to him. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 16, it writes this, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And it was written to those who are kept for Jesus. John said in John 17, verses 9 through 11, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. For I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so it's from this same heart of Jesus that Jude wrote to the readers of this letter, reminding us of our call from God, reminding us that we are God's beloved, and reminding us that we are kept for Jesus Christ. And probably he wrote it this way because he saw all of those things within himself. Now verse 2 it says, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is essentially a prayer. Essentially, Jude's prayer to us. And we know that mercy weighed really heavily on Jude's mind. 
You skip down to the end of the letter, verses 21 through 23, and you see how often he mentions mercy there. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear. Mercy is this huge subject matter with Jude, and then he points out peace. Jude wanted peace to be multiplied within the followers of Jesus. And then he points out love. And so this helps us to see the character of Jude, who then makes this appeal to us. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now you notice that Jude used this phrase here about our common salvation in verse 3. That was really important to him. That is what he really wanted to write about. That's the subject matter that he really wanted to focus on. He wanted to write about the marvel of salvation that all of us had or have. But he found it necessary to write an appeal to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, it wasn't on Jude's heart to write something that can be perceived as so negative. Who wants to present this sort of news to people? Who wants to talk about false teachers and false teachings and pointing those types of things? We want to talk about things that are happier. Right? That let's talk about salvation. Let's talk about love. Let's talk about mercy. Let's talk about peace. Let's talk about these things. But he saw something that was very much needed And from those first few verses, we see Jude's heart. Before we go into him contending for the faith, to really focus on his heart, that he was really concerned for the church, that this is not something that he really wanted to write about, but that he had to write about. He had to write about contending for the church. Contend for the people in the church against being led astray. And Jude really wanted to write about something more happy, but he really couldn't. He needed to address false teaching, false teachers, because it was hurting the church and its people. And it's important for us as a church to be able to identify false teachings, false teachers for the church and for the people in the church. Now, did you notice that Jude wrote that it's for the faith? It's not written for faith. It is not written for a faith. He is specific in what this contending is for the faith that was once delivered for all delivered to the saints Jude is writing about the gospel what gospel the only gospel the good news about Jesus he's not writing about faith in general or about just a faith about anything he's writing about the faith we have in Jesus Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. John wrote in 2 John chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We have the gospel of Jesus. Are we watering it down? 
Are we adding to it? Are we proclaiming the gospel of Jesus as it is presented in the scriptures? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 8. This is what the author writes. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. When we share the gospel, do we proclaim Jesus and it's nothing more? It is nothing less. That it's Jesus and only Jesus that can take my place and pay my debts to sin. We need to be really careful with what's popular. With what's acceptable in our culture. To stick to what once and for all delivered to the saints was to us. Now in verse 4, there's this interesting phrase, this interesting pronoun. It says, for certain people. Now Jude will be pointing out a particular group of people whom he doesn't call out by name, but he uses the term these. These people who defile the flesh reject authority. Verse 8, right? These people who blaspheme all that they do not understand, unreasoning animals. Verse 10. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. Verse 12. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 16. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Verse 19. So repeatedly, Jude is pointing out these people, but he doesn't point out exactly who they are. He doesn't point out a people group or what cities they're from or anything like that. And you notice that Jude doesn't give us every instance of false teaching because that's impossible, right? That is impossible. But he does give us ways to recognize false teachers and how to contend against them. So how do we recognize a false teacher? It's actually pretty easy when it's obvious. Right? Like if somebody just came through the doors and just started like sharing things and spouting things off, you can be like, hmm, false teacher. It's pretty easy to point that guy out. Easy when it's just so clearly unbiblical. The ones that we are to worry about aren't the guys that are just going to come through the door and start spouting those things out. The ones we are to worry about are the ones that aren't obvious. They're not obvious at all. It is these to whom we have to worry about. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They have crept in unnoticed. People looking to corrupt the gospel don't just walk in head in like this, like, and announce their arrival, and like, hey, you know what? I'm going to lead you away from Jesus. They don't say that to you. It's more discreet. 
They creep in unnoticed. And we have to be aware of that. We have to discern this. A way to identify them is that they are ungodly people. They don't have the qualities of God, things like mercy, peace, love, and the truth of our common salvation in Jesus. They are very dishonest. They are masked. They appear different from who they really are. They don't have the best interest of the church at heart. They have their own selfish interests. They have their own selfish agendas. Here's something about the church. See, People really don't need us to be the best at doing anything. There are a lot of other people that can do that. We don't have to be the best at anything. We don't need people here who are at the best at what they do. You don't have to be the best. But this is what people do need you to be. This is what the world needs us to be. They need us to be godly. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be the best, but we have to be godly. We need the people in the church to be godly. There are a ton of social services out there that will do a much better job than we are. And the people aren't looking at the church to do those social services. But what differentiates us is that people do look at us to be godly. We need to be godly. And here's a dead giveaway about ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There's this distortion of the gospel where a sin is not called a sin anymore. Righteousness and holiness are not the standards, but living the way our flesh desires to live has become the standard. That's so-called freedom. And so that is a dead giveaway about ungodly people. The grace of God has been perverted into sensuality. Here's what Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is what Paul wrote. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Please don't mistake this for a legalism on our part. We were given God's grace... I don't know if any of you have ever thought about this before. But each one of us have been given the grace of God before we received any law. Is that true? The law came after grace, did it not? Look at Exodus. God delivered the Jews, this slave race, from Egypt before they got the Ten Commandments. God didn't go up to them and show, hey, Ten Commandments first. Follow this and then you get delivered. He doesn't do that. He gave them grace first. And then he says, you know what? In order to stay free and not go back into bondage, you have to keep these laws. Otherwise, you're going to lose your freedom. Isn't it the same thing in our society? Let's just take driving as an example. You have the freedom to drive. It's a privilege, it's a freedom, and you can drive. But if you continuously break the law, don't you lose that freedom? The freedom to drive is in this boundary of law. You don't get to just do whatever you want to do in driving. You don't get to drink and drive. You don't get to go 30 miles over the speed limit. You don't get to park in the red zone. You don't get to do all these things. There is... Grace given to you, drive. You can travel anywhere that connects on land within speed limits and all these different laws. You get to do those things. But if you break those things, you don't get to do it anymore. 
you lose that freedom. And time and time again, this is how God works. He redeems people. He saves people. He delivers people. And then He tells them, in order to keep that, you need to live this way. Otherwise, you're going to lose it. So why do people get all bent out of shape about Christianity and our so-called laws? When this is just the normal ways of life in our own society. When you look at driving, when you look at any other types of freedoms that we may have. When did Jesus say, sin no more to people? When did he say that? Before he delivered someone or after? He never says it before. He never goes to someone and says, hey, um, sin no more, and then I'll heal your leprosy. He doesn't do that. He heals them, and then sin no more. It's how God works all the time. He gives us grace. He sets his people free, and then he tells them, in order to remain free, in order for you not to be in bondage, to fall back into bondage, you kind of have to live like this. He's protecting us from that bondage. But people have perverted the grace of God, expecting Him to deliver them and to give them freedom, which He does give to us because He's gracious, but we do things, things that violate that freedom, and we have a lot of freedom. But then we violate these things. We have grace, but we also have law. And when someone is all Grace. That's all they talk about. They all talk about grace, but no law. You need to watch out for that person. You need to be careful of that person. And that's a very appropriate time for you to get your antenna up and to discern whether the grace of God has been perverted into sensuality. They're godless, and it will show in their character. Now, one of those character flaws will be arrogance. You look at verse 8. These people, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. It's arrogance. Another character flaw in these people is that they are self-absorbed. Look at verse 12. They are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. See, it's not about other people at all. It's all about themselves. One more character flaw to point out in Jude is found in verse 16. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, why do people grumble? You think about this. Why do people grumble? Here's a big reason why. Because they think of themselves higher than they ought to think. Right? Something's wrong and they feel like they deserve more or that they're owed more or that they should be treated differently because they are this type of person. And so they want others to make changes to adapt to them when you don't have any control of that whatsoever. But what you can do is you can make some changes within yourself to kind of have yourself influence what's around you. Now back to those who creep in unnoticed. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They deny Jesus. And in verse 4, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. What Jesus taught is not accepted as truth. What He proclaimed in Himself is not accepted as truth who He said He is. And what He taught is compromised because of this denial. And again, it's subtle. 
They won't come out and flat out say, you know, I deny Jesus, but pause long enough and observe them and listen to them and seek that discernment. If they are false teachers, you'll see it and you'll hear it. And sometimes you don't see or hear it for a while, but your spirit just tells you, you know, something's just not right. Something's not right. And you need to listen to that. Because of these ungodly people who pervert the grace of God and sensuality, who deny our master, Jesus Christ, Jude serves as a reminder to us in verses 5 through 16 with these examples of the Israelites, the angels, these various cities God dealt with, and essentially what this is, is it's church history. So you look at the example in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. So he delivered these people from Egypt, from slavery, and the majority of them did not enter the promised land because they didn't believe. See, God's grace delivered them, but they didn't believe. And here's an example, number two, verse six. And the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Angels who were so discontent, malcontent, grumbling with what they were given by God rebelled and they ended up in bondage. So you see how these angels, they experienced the grace of God first. And they rebelled against what God established so that they could remain free and they ended up in bondage. Here's the third example, verses 7 and 8. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, they were beautiful cities. They were wonderful cities. People wanted to live there. That's why Lot separated from his uncle Abraham. He was like, forget living out here in the wilderness. I want to go into that beautiful city. They have all the stuff, and it's great to live there. But those cities, they became prideful. They became prideful in all that they had become without any regard to God, and his grace made it possible for them to be great cities. They experienced God's grace, but then they rebelled against the law. See, God's grace comes before the law. He gives us grace such as our freedom, but in order to stay free, we need to live within laws that allow us that freedom. Otherwise, we end up back in bondage. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Oftentimes, Christians think that as long as we say no to something or that we ignore it or that we just turn the other way, that that's enough. It's not. Saying no to something, ignoring something, being passive about how we approach our spiritual formation doesn't grow our formation. A lot of guys struggle with pornography. And you just say no to it long enough and you ignore it long enough, does your heart change about it though? Does your heart still remain about it? That if it's right there in front of you again, you kind of just go right back to it? See, our character does not grow without applying the gospel. See, simply just saying no to temptation, no to sin, yes, that's part of it, but it can't stop there. 
Saying no to it doesn't change your heart. And though there may be some of us who are good at spotting ungodly people, at those who pervert the gospel or deny Jesus, but that isn't the gospel. And that's not growing our Christian character. It's one thing to identify those people, to identify those false doctrines. It is another thing to be able to handle those people and to talk to those people and to those who are leading people astray and to talk to those who have been led astray for us to exercise mercy and peace and love while identifying those people. Not to just like kick them out and just like leave or whatever, but to love those people, to show them mercy, to show them love. That is character formation. It's not simply contending just to say like, get out of here and leave and never come back again. But how are we going to treat them as well as treat the people influenced by them? Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like, like unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, like, tell us what you really think, Jude. I mean, these are really harsh words, right? He's like letting them have it. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. I'm out of time. Next week we'll look at the last verses at how to guard ourselves from these false teachings, these false teachers. And we know that they're out there looking to come in. We know this. This has been prophesied. And they might even be in here already. If you are a false teacher, if you are doing false teaching, hi. Like, we know you're here. Like, okay, like you're, you're, we're looking for you. We we'll want to minister to you. I'm praying for you. And I'm encouraging you to be aware as a church of these false teachers, these false teachings. Let's pray. Lord, Something your brother didn't really want to write about, but he saw that it was really important. And so may we glean from it, Lord, the things that you have in mind for us to learn from. I ask, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of humility as we approach people who are simply perverting the gospel. And oftentimes, God, what's tied to that is sensuality. It's a telltale sign of the perversion is that it always leads back to sensuality. It always leads back to licentiousness and unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so, Lord, would you be able to give us that discernment to be able to see those things for what they are while we don't lose compassion and we don't lose mercy and a desire for peace and love in Jesus' name.